Welcome to Empowering Chats with Susan Burrell. This is where I help strong, capable women excavate the inner garbage in their life so they can become more confident and have more clarity on who they are and how they really want to be in the world. We have rich, juicy conversations about, yeah, you guessed it, empowerment, but also about radiating your brilliance and loving yourself more than you ever have in your life. And who doesn't want that? So join me now for another Empowering Chat. Welcome to Empowering Chats with Susan Burrell. And under the annual theme of Be Expansive is for the month of August, society. It's it's a, it's a crazy ride, you guys. Just just hang in, hang in there. Um, definitely, definitely listen to all the shows. I'm just I'm just tickled. I'm tickled. So, society, a definition or two is an organized group of persons associated together for religious, benevolent, cultural, scientific, political, patriarchal. Patriarchal, geez, that's not the word, patriotic or other purposes. Another definition, a body of individuals living as members of a community. So we're having these conversations now. I I, I love it. I can't wait to see what unfolds. So I just want to say enjoy the shows. So this is going to be an interesting conversation. I was drawn to this author's book because of the title, which I'll, I'll read to you in just a moment. But the conversation I feel is um, very timely under the heading of society because it, it this, this book addresses uh, what we've just gone through with the pandemic, but also what we as, uh, at least for me, um, as a, a baby boomer with an elderly father have been going through. Um, so the title is called Into the Field of Suffering, Finding the Other Side Out of Burnout. Out. And the author is David Shank. David, thanks for joining me. Great to be here, Susan. So I this, this book is really lovely. Um, in that there's a lot of no nonsense here because you wrote this right after you collect a, a series of interviews that you and Scott Neely did of um, not just not caregivers, but people in the healing profession, nurses, doctors, that kind of thing. Right. Right. And also 25 years of hospice volunteering. So working with families and then as an ethics consultant in two different academic hospitals, working with doctors and families together. So, yeah, a broad range of conversations, workshops, interviews. So, David, I, I'm, I'm so curious and I love that you are working in ethics because I feel like we're kind of this is just a general thing about society, but I feel like. Ethics is kind of like was it's like my grandparents knew ethics. I don't know that people today know ethics. So right. I really appreciate your work in that. But how does that how does ethics and hospice relate to um, helping people that are in the healing professions? Again, nurses, doctors, the medical community, how to deal with burnout when they're so busy trying to help people. 
Well, I think the first thing is that healing itself is, to me, a moral enterprise. Uh, it is touching people in their human core and their spiritual core and trying to help people regain balance on many different levels. And so to me, that's the first uh, layer of, of integration. And then the second thing is moral distress and burnout, which are terms in some ways, not great terms. And we can come back to that, uh, that we use to describe challenging experiences for caregivers also themselves to me have an ethical kernel. So if you're going to work with somebody on moral distress, it's good to tell them to eat better. We all need to eat better. It's good to tell them to exercise more. It's good to tell them to do awareness practice. But what I always say is unless you get to the ethical core, the kernel, the thing in the middle that violates a person's sense of their vocation and who they are, then you're not going to be able to help them move past their moral distress. And you're not really going to help them be able to renew themselves so they, they don't burn out. You know, I so appreciate that. I, and I love that phrase, moral distress. Um, so, so what does that look like for people first? And then I want to circle back to what you just said, moral distress. Right. The place that it arose as a term was in describing the position of a nurse working, let's say, in an ICU. The doctor comes in and says, do six blood draws today. Well, the nurse thinks, I, you know, I've been with this patient for the last three days, 12 hours a day. Uh, why do we need six sticks? Uh, this doctor only came in this morning. He was only in here for six minutes. I actually know the patient better, but here are the orders. So the person is torn between what she or he finds their vocation to be and caring for the patient, the patient that they know better than the doctor, but in the hierarchy, um, they're obliged to do the order. Uh -huh. And so the term came about there in a very specific context, but it's now moved to a broader sense of anytime a person is involved in a situation that violates their sense of a vocation. I, I feel called to be a healer, to be involved in healthcare, to do caregiving, because my heart is moved in a certain way. But there are institutional things or individuals that prevent that or even insult that. And that's what we mean by moral distress. The thing that I talk about in the book, in addition to moral distress, is what I call moral anguish. So mm. if moral distress refers to this kind of institutional stuckness, moral anguish is when you internalize that, when, when you take it home, when you feel torn apart by it. So it's, I felt like distress is a good term, but it seemed too mild for some of the things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. Okay. So, and I would imagine, oh, uh, wow. I have, I'm just feeling way, David, I just have to say this out loud. I'm just feeling waves of grief waves of grief, um, not mine, but waves of grief as you're mentioning all of this, mm -hmm. because, um, wow, I'm going to start crying. Yeah. Um, because having gone through the pandemic and, and, and the hospital system was really 
tested, tested beyond its ability. Uh, that's kind of putting it nicely. And the people yes. that kept showing up, kept showing up for work in the middle of that. And I remember um, when the AIDS pandemic happened, yeah. you know, and there was a, exactly the same thing going on where, where, where nurses and doctors and healthcare professionals needed, wanted to be there for individuals. But the fear factor was so huge. I mean, moral anguish, holy moly, go yeah. and, and just getting home and you're, and, and you're carrying all that load of anguish with mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. How do you not get burned out? Right. You know, when I started as a hospice volunteer, it was in the late 80s. And for a good while, this was in South Carolina, I was the only hospice volunteer who would see an AIDS patient. Wow. There was just so much fear and so much challenge. Um, I mean, part of my Part of what I want to say about moral distress and burnout is that a certain level of depletion, exhaustion, the sense that you've gone beyond what your resources are, is going to be inevitable. I don't think burnout is inevitable, but going through a period where you're not sure how to go next, I think is inevitable. And so if you expect that as part of your vocation, then you're prepared for that you're prepared to do the kind of in-depth work and internal work that will allow you to renew and replenish. But if you think, okay, burnout is failure, it's the end of the line, <sighs> I shouldn't have gotten here, then you you have a much greater challenge to get yourself uh, back together and, and to grow. And the other thing, and I know this will make makes sense to you, I think of burnout as in some ways a process of burning off the ego, burning. Oh, off, I love that. Yes. Yes. Burning off ego inflation. So <laughs> I love yeah, that too. Ego inflation. There, there's some ego inflation in the medical. Community. No, really, David, really. Hmm. Well, only once or twice, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. The, what I describe in the book is a progression or an arc of a healer's vocation. So you feel a calling. You know, in my workshops, I would always say, I would usually begin by saying, or one of the first things I would ask is, when did you first know you wanted to be a nurse? When did you first know you wanted to go into medicine? And what I'm trying to do there is to get people to touch into their heart center, to feel and remember why they got into this in the first place. So there's call and then there's initiation period. You know, you do your training uh, the first time that you work with a, a, a corpse and do some dissection, the first time one of your patients dies, all this kind of initiation and training process. And then you enter what I call a period of mastery. You've learned your skills, you feel good, you're able to actually really help people do this, that, and the other. Uh, and you are helping them. And then you begin to run into things that are really beyond your capacity, or you find yourself stretched. And this begins the process of depletion that I'm talking about. But what I think, part of what I think is happening there is during the period of mastery, it's easy to get the inflated hit, you know? Mm. And then you realize that 
Life is complicated. There are all different layers of suffering. This is more complex than I realized. And you come down to a more um, human level is not quite the right word. It's a more um, realistic level. That's also not quite the right word. But your eyes are clear. You see more. And then you realize, maybe I should do this kind of work to grow my capacity back out again. You go back in, you work and you work. And then there's another time when you've outgrown your capacity and another layer of ego. There are plenty of layers, right? Yeah. Ego is peeled off and then you go forward. But if you use a term like burnout too easily and too heavily, then I think it blocks that development. The opportunity. Yeah. So I want to read something from your book, David, if I may that caught my attention. Um, In it, you say, this is under the heading, the nature of the healing vocation. You say, those who have stepped forward to do caring work are engaged in a moral enterprise, which you mentioned earlier. They're engaged in an enterprise that enacts a picture of goodness and wholeness as they join others in trying to make healing happen. They're also engaged in what I would encourage us to think of as a spiritual venture. So, you know, and I'm all about the spiritual. I'm all yes. about, you know, everything's, everything's as much as I hate it. I'll be honest, David, I hate it that everything's a learning opportunity, but it just seems, and you've got um, components in your book. It just seems like people that are going into the um, trenches, if you will, mm-hmm. of, of, of dealing with uh, people that are suffering, dying, um, and not necessarily having solutions that are going to alleviate their suffering or their dying. Um, it seems like those caregivers c- should really be trained first or or at least right after uh, right. on how to um, protect themselves, not in a keeping themselves separate, but like what you're talking about, how the the after I've been initiated and I'm, I'm masterful at my job, how do I protect myself or care for myself so that the depletion doesn't really bottom me out? Because I know lots of caregivers just get bottomed out. Right. Right. So to me, and you, you talk about uh, breath work and meditation to me, that seems like something that needs to be given to these people as part of their nursing training. So they know what to do. Well, I agree completely, of course. Uh, one of the and one of the challenges for people in traditional medicine, so we got a whole range, right? If if we're talking about caregiving and healthcare in its broadest sense, um we've got acupuncturists in Chinese medicine, we've got uh Ayurvedic medicine, we've got uh, craniosacral practitioners, so there's a whole range, but with many different understandings of the body. And many of those have, are suffused with spirituality, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But in traditional medicine training in the West, uh, it's physiological, it's mechanical. And so people get uh, medical students and nursing students and physician assistant uh, students get soaked in a mechanistic view of the body they are in a curriculum where if you say, well, I want to introduce an ethics course, it's like, 
okay, <laughs> we could do ethics every fifth Wednesday for an hour. Now, there aren't that many fifth Wednesdays in a year, okay? So the curriculum and the day for these students is crammed with this understanding of the body at the very same time that they are moved into the field of suffering. Their mm -hmm. bodies are being uh, placed in these settings where the body is absorbing all of this suffering, all of this pain, and the picture of the body that they're being taught has no room for this at all, none. And even if the person has some inclination that the body is more than the mechanism that they're being taught, it tends to get rubbed out, at least for a while, you know. I mean, sometimes I will say to students, look, this process is going to be like brainwashing and it's just going to smush your brain and your soul for a while. You'll recover if you work at it, but look around you. There are plenty of people who haven't recovered. So don't forget. Right. So, right. And um, I appreciate that you're straightforward with them about that because that's, that really is what I see in the traditional medicine modality is that there it's just a head it's a it's a head you know there's the heart is is pushed aside because they got to figure out the solution to the problem there's a lot of literature survey material about the idealism of medical students when they come in mm -hmm. and four years later they are, first of all, this mechanistic thing has happened, but also they're much more worried about money, partly because they piled up this huge amount of debt. Yeah. So they've come to understand more about the institutional system, which specialty gets paid more, which doesn't, which has more prestige. And so they get swamped and their initial impulse gets pushed down. And this is where part of what it I try to do or try to do with ethics is to touch on that and bring it back out, you know, find that again. And uh, that's part of the reason for opening these workshops by saying, remember when you wanted to do this, how did you know that you wanted to do this touch back? And I'll do this all the time in these workshops, touch back in here. And everybody knows what that is. You know, nobody raises their hand and says, Dr. Shank, why aren't you patting <laughs> your head where your brain is? Everybody uh, understands it. And part of what I also try to do in the workshops, and some of this is in chapter four and in the appendix in the book, is do some of, introduce people to some of these basic exercises. So I may ask them to uh, sit quietly for a little bit and see what it feels like to do a belly, you know, belly breathing. Uh, I will ask them to do a listening exercise where one person talks for five minutes and the other person is quiet for five minutes, completely quiet. And then uh, the person who's listened says to the person back, here's what I heard you say for a couple of minutes. And then the person who's been talking gets to say, look, David, you'd like totally miss the point. Here's what it is. And it's amazing how difficult people, what difficulty people have in not turning it into a conversation. Oh yeah. Usually about three minutes in, I have to say, okay, stop. <laughs> You're in conversation. Listen. And the, and the other thing I say is in healthcare, 
you seldom have an opportunity for someone to listen to you. You're always talking. So enjoy this. And then I thought, okay, go back to it. But I try to build those things in because this is a way they should have had it before. They should have had it all along to balance this other stuff, but they haven't. But this is a way to at least introduce. And if I'm lucky, I get them, nursing students in particular, during their residency. So it's it's relatively early on in their training. That's good. That's good because um, to find, an, uh, you know, I have doctors, um, multiple doctors, and um, their nurse nurse practitioners are the ones I see more often. And, but I like that because those people, those nurse practitioners listen to me where the, the I have this one doctor, she's like trying to find, okay, where's, where, where do I put the, you know, pin the tail on the donkey because I got to go somewhere else. Right. You know, and I'm like, you're, you're not listening to me. Right. The nurse practitioners are, well, Often in the medical school, in the hospital, I would say 98% of the good stuff that happens in this hospital is because of nurses. Mm-hmm. If you add in the nurse practitioners, I mean, they are in general, uh, I think, uh, the best part of our medical system. For a long time, my primary care, well, and now too, my primary care person was a nurse practitioner. And at one point I said, look, Jane, here's my idea for healthcare reform. We get rid of all the doctors. Yeah. Everybody is a nurse practitioner. We may keep a couple of surgeons uh, and we have nurses. And she said, can I keep a couple of technicians to do some tests? <laughs> okay, Jane. And now we have a plan. Yeah. Yeah. You go back to something that you said a minute ago. So you were talking about doctors being heads, but the thing about that is they are being wounded from here down. Mm but they don't know it right? And are often totally unaware of it. And, and one of, so it begins to happen. There's some distress, but rather than going into the pain, they make this uh, <laughs> barrier here stronger and stay up here uh, and stay more analytic, which is a tragedy. It's a human tragedy for them, but it's also terrible for their patients terrible for the patients. So let's talk a bit about the wounding because because you do go into that in your book. Um, uh, again, and because I'm an energy worker and, uh, uh, you know, I'm always digging in my wounds and going, ew, you know, but for other, especially if they're on the front line in a hospital, it's got to be hard to take yourself out, take time out and say, okay, why am I feeling triggered? What is that? What's going, why is my stomach upset? What, what am I feeling? So mm-hmm. what, so what are the wounds you talk about, David, in your book? The inner wounds, not the outer wounds. Right. Right. Well, part of what I say in the book is uh, there are one way to think about it is that there are three levels of, of mm-hmm. wounds. Uh, and so I talk about the kind of current time wounding, and this is what you're saying, like, uh, <clears throat> you know, today at work, I had to deal with this kind of accident and so on and so on, or three days ago. So there are those things that are disruptive to us. And then there's what I call 
historical wounding. So something that may have happened uh, five years ago, 10 years ago during our training that's still alive in us, still a reactive place. And so we can get rewounded when it happens in present time. And then I think for most of us, you're an energy worker uh, or all of us, there is an archaic level back to childhood, early childhood, latency period, however you want to describe it. And those things are inscribed in our body mm-hmm. and we carry them forward and they get, again, you're an energy person, I'm telling you what you know, but they get activated. And I think in particular for people with a healing vocation or a caregiving vocation, they are, we are putting ourselves into situations that are guaranteed to hit those places, guaranteed to reactivate them. And that's part of the uniqueness of the vocation. Part of what you're saying is, I will, no one says this out loud, I will be vulnerable. I I will go into settings where it's impossible not to be vulnerable. And so what I encourage people to do is to try to understand and explore that. Now, you're right. In the middle of a COVID pandemic, all this stuff is coming down so fast, nobody has time to reflect. But Mm -hmm. this is part of the reason to do it ahead of time. So uh, one of my teachers, uh, Sherry Huber, uh, Zen teacher in, in California. Um, she said, you know, people would come to me in the middle of a divorce or something really difficult. And, you know, what do I do now? And she would say, do the best you can survive it. And then we'll do some spiritual training. We'll do some discipline so that the next time this happens, you're going to be ready. And so I would encourage people to Uh, you know, to explore this ahead of time. Now, one other thing, which which is part of where this book came from, is anecdotally, no survey. I don't even know how you could do a survey on this. But my experience is an enormous percentage of people in healing professions are working on healing themselves. Yep, yep. Right. So, Almost everybody needs to reflect in the field, needs to reflect on this. Uh, And you see it and you see people walking around with gaping wounds, basically. Um, And so that's part of the reason to try to offer this kind of material. The other, interrupt me if you want, that's fine. But the other piece of this is I think people get the people that I know well, I will say this too. You get the patients you need. Oh, yes. In other words, I have this kind of wounding and lo and behold, guess who comes through my door? A person who has either the same wound or a matching wound that is going to activate mine. And so part of what I need to be able to do if I'm at an advanced skill level is to say, oh, John is here today. My father issues. Yeah, here's a chance for me to get centered and stay in this place while all this father stuff is going on. But that's an advanced. Yeah, that's somebody who's taken time just 
to go within themselves and and dig out the stuff that really does need to be healed on an inner level. And and to me, I can't, it it is a little astonishing to me when I meet um, healthcare professionals who haven't done that work. Mm -hmm. Um, or, 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 and when I start talking about the work that I do, they, they can't, it's beyond comprehension. They don't even know. So. But one thing I, I really enjoyed, honestly, I don't like to work with medical students. They're partly, they're just trying to figure out what's going on, but partly, um, they haven't been in the trenches yet. The Mm -hmm. people I really like to work with are the residents. So they finished their medical training. They've done the classroom stuff. And now they're on the unit. And for the first time, they're responsible. I mean, they have a supervisor. But they and the nurses run the hospital, the residents and nurses. And they are responsible for people's lives for the first time. And if you're working with them, you see the moment when there is a death that just stabs them in the heart. Yeah. Because they tried their best or because there was nothing they could do. And so one thing I say about spiritual practice is, what do you do when there is nothing you can do? What do you do, David? Tell me. (laughs) You breathe. I think you have to learn to be present to that and to have a sense of the... Now, in another context, this isn't going to make any sense, but this will make sense to you and probably- You go for it. Yeah, I'm going for it. The interconnectedness that runs out from you. I call it the great capacity in the dialogues at at the end of the book, in the last quarter of the book. But this sense that you have some capacity that you're offering, but at some point there's a limit to what you can do. And you have to- lean back and allow the universe, allow this interconnectedness to uh, move as it will and carry it as it will. When I ran the free medical clinic for a a few years, uh, it was sponsored by a lot of churches. And often when we would have a patient that was just, there were so many things going on. You know, there was a housing question, there was income, there was substance abuse, diabetes. I mean, there were just all these things. And I, and sometimes I would say, look, we could close the clinic down, let all the other patients go. Every one of us could work on Mary right now. And we wouldn't be able to touch the core. This is, this is God's work. We just have to do the best we can stay present, not abandon her, but this is this is not fixable. We can be present, we can hold it with compassion, but it's it fits in this larger field. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Much larger field. Yeah. 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 So and there's almost like a um for some of those uh, caregivers, that must feel like again, going back to feeling like you're a failure, you know, you, you weren't able, but to hold a larger um, space for the individual, you know, and there's also something called free will 
right? So um, sometimes individuals who become ill, it, it, oh, I'm saying it, it, it's their choice because there is a lesson, because there is a wound that needs to be healed because, 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 and, right. um, and it doesn't, for the, in, the caregivers, it doesn't mean that they're not doing their best and couldn't help them. That individual maybe didn't want to be helped. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, so one of the things that I found it really important to do in working with these residents is to say, you haven't failed. I say, every practitioner I know who's reflective, mm -hmm. <laughs> 70 years old, has one case or two that they remember from their residency or early in their career that they feel like was a failure. Someone died and they feel responsible. I said, this, this is part of your vocation. This is what you're going to carry forward. And eventually you will learn that this is a teacher, mm -hmm. that this thing that you are experiencing right now that is tearing you apart. And I understand why, and it would tear me apart, but eventually this will be a teacher and it will be a resource that allows you to expand and be a better healer. So what I love that. Do, what I'm trying to do is give, they're not going to get it right there, of course, but hopefully it gets planted in here so that, you know, someday they might say, that old ethics guy, you know, <laughs> with the gray hair, didn't he say something about this? So trying to validate and hold them compassionately in the moment, but also here's something that you may be able to use as you grow into your vocation. So let's talk about the um, something I attempt to practice for myself is detached compassion because I'm so empath empathic that I dive right into other people's garbage, and, you know, and I take it on. And I think a lot of um, people that choose uh, a healing profession as a vocation, we, we are all highly empathic and empathy doesn't necessarily help. No. Um, so there's one place in the book where I talk about the movement from, <clears throat> excuse me, empathy to presence. So sympathy, right, is, oh, I'm sorry, you feel bad. Empathy is a more, just as you said, direct connection and a, the you sense in your own body what the other person is going through. Is that reasonable? Yep. yep. Okay. So when I talk talk about the movement from empathy to presence. What I'm trying to talk about is staying with the person, mm -hmm. continuing to listen, not abandoning, which is incredibly important. Uh, it's not the worst thing you can do, but it's pretty high on the list of don't do this. Uh, but retract, if you will, that intertwining on the emotional level but it's still a compassionate place you're still receiving mm -hmm. you're not judging you are hopefully maybe you've got your you know feet planted on the floor your spine straight you're breathing 
So you're doing the physiological, let's just call it, bodily things to stay present, but and your heart is still there, but it's not out here. And yeah. then you come back to that. But there are periods where either you're getting overwhelmed or what's going on in the other person is so toxic. You do energy work, huh? Yeah. It's so toxic that you really need to step back or you're not going to be able to do your work. Right. And and it's not your job to take on their toxicity. In fact, it's bad for them, bad for you. Huh? So that makes sense. Is that? Oh, it, it makes complete sense. Um, it makes complete sense. I So, um, David, the other reason why I want to talk to you is because while this is for um, people in the healthcare profession, your book, Into the Field of Suffering, um, I was... I mentioned it at the beginning earlier, I uh, felt like the the baby boomers, I have so many friends, we're all of a certain age, whose parents are all of a certain age in need of care. And there's um, two things I wanted to say and ask your, your expertise on. But so there's an old, um, which is, I, I, I don't know, uh, modality that we were all raised with that when our parents get older, we have to take care of them, mm -hmm. especially for the women in the family, right? I'm the oldest and I'm a girl and there, there was, I got it. I got, I got it, man. And it was an unspoken assumption that I can, I know I've tracked generationally the, you know, down and down and down. And, um, and so in being a, a, a caregiver to my father, now my mother passed away a couple of years ago, which um, my dad was caregiving her and he was completely burned out. Yeah. Uh, and so he got ill earlier this year. He's now much better. But during the process, he was in the hospital for a couple of weeks and the doctor's it, again, it was like pin the tail on the doctor. Well, we think it's this. Well, we think it's this. Well, maybe it's that. Well, let's do this, you know? And my dad's like, could you just fix it? Could you just fix it? And I got completely sucked into trying to help do everything, take care of him, especially when he got home. And I was, I burned out. I was, it was like a moth to a flame for yeah. me. Yeah. And and my, my uh, immediate family you know, kept saying, don't do this. Don't go there. Just, you know, and once my dad got a little bit better, he looked at me and he saw, you can't do this. I said, no, I cannot do this. It's not my job. Right. But I, then I had, I've spent the last few months rebuilding my inner um, resiliency yeah. and, yeah. and all that. So what would you say to the people like me, <laughs> the, you know, that, that, that aren't necessarily in the caregiving profession, but we're in that place now. Well, I hope the, the book is based primarily for in large part on experiences in the healthcare system, but I hope, I think it's accessible for caregivers, you know, and caregiving is, I mean, you're right. You, as an oldest daughter, you get, you know, it's on you. I'm the oldest yeah. son, but it's not on me in the same 
way, although, well, we could get to that. We could come back to that. My mother died in January. So I, I, I got four siblings and, you know, there's a whole thing there. But caregiving is, let's just say, universal or virtually universal experience. And it is an experience where <clears throat> vulnerability of your father meets generosity, your generosity. Wow. And that's an incredible opportunity, you know, but it also has a particular danger, which mm -hmm. is being stretched past your resource. So what about that? Part of it is recognizing that the field of suffering is also the field of healing. So field of suffering, let's just think about your dad. And during the time that he was, you know, struggling, he's better now, that's good. But during the time that he was struggling, there is, let us say, a field of suffering around him. What do I mean mm -hmm. by that? Well, you're an energy worker, you can. You, but in explaining this to a broader audience, I will say, you know, most of us as a child, we went to visit somebody who was sick, grandmother, sibling, best friend. And there was always the room. And when you walked in the room, you knew you were in a different kind of space. And mm -hmm. often there was fear, you know, mm -hmm. uh, what are they going to look like? Uh, what are they going to smell like? Uh, what kind of noises are going to be going on? Is my friend going to, you know, how is that going to look? Uh, gosh, is my grandfather close to dying? And then as we get older, those fears and anxiety shift, but they tend always to be there because in the presence of uh, brokenness or disruption, you're never sure exactly what's going to go on. As a caregiver, you go in with the intention of being present to whatever is happening, but you don't know. You don't know. But by simply entering the field of suffering, you change it. Mm -hmm. Part of what happens mm. is the person, let's call it the patient, although it's not a great word, your dad doesn't feel alone. You're no longer alone. You are no longer caught in the vortex because there's someone else there who brings a different field and there's an interaction then, you know, like you drop two pebbles in a pond and the, you know, the waves go out and interact and make that kind of uh, more pattern. Um, so when you enter that field, something happens that can be healing for you as well as the other person. But I think it's important for caregivers to recognize that they are going to get depleted. It's a guarantee. You have to learn new stuff, you know, the hospice people or the nurses or the doctors are saying, now you need to do this and this and this when you're with your dad. So there's that. There's physical exhaustion. There's emotional exhaustion. There is the simple difficulty of watching someone you love suffer, which you internalize. And there's this tension between, I want to offer my gifts, but and I want this person to get better, but there is so much uncertainty about that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All of that comes together uh, to make it difficult. And I think it 
one of the simplest things for a care any caregiver is what I describe in the book, which I learned from Brew Joy, uh, pause center shift as an I love expert. that. I love that. Yes. Isn't it great? I mean, well, like I say, learned it from Brew. It's fantastic. So anybody can do this. You're sitting at the bedside with your parent, with my mother, your father, and it just feels overwhelmed for whatever reason. Take, even if it's only 30 seconds, sit back in the chair, or you can do it standing up. Plant your feet on the ground again, straighten your spine. We know from how many different modalities, therapeutic modalities, that straightening the spine is, it aligns us as the axis mundi. We're, we are now the the center, not the center in the narcissistic sense, but we are a pole communicating between um, heaven and earth, let's say. Yeah. So, and we know Chinese medicine, um, Ayurvedic medicine, chiropractors, craniosacral practitioners, you know, it does, just straighten your spine. Trust me, it will do something. So you plant yeah. your feet, straighten your spine, do the belly breathing. So you're, you've paused. You've stopped whatever it is you're trying to do. You've paused. You've come back to center. And then you try to find a part of yourself that is a different part. So if I'm caring for my mother, something that's likely to come forward is childhood stuff, right? And so yeah, part yeah. of what can be overwhelming is that. But if I can come back, center, and like, okay, I'm 71, <laughs> She's 94. I've been taking care of her for a while. Actually, if anything's going on here, she's the child, I'm the adult. Or I have 25 years of hospice experience. I have seen this before. And then re-enter. But even just a little break, which anybody can do. Anybody can do this. Uh, and it can be done almost any time. I mean, it can even be done in the middle of... Uh, resuscitation in a code you know you're doing these compressions and then there's a moment where somebody else is breathing and you you can straighten your spine shuffle your feet breathe a couple of times and then you're back in the middle of it um so that's one thing and then just the not judging yourself for those oh. times when you're tired you know it's like if I really loved my mother I could keep going if I really love my father I could keep going well hell no you have your own limits. They have theirs. You have yours. And maybe part of their work is to work through this without you in a certain way for a certain period of time. And that's an important thing to realize. You're not omnipotent. The course of their illness is not your responsibility. The course of their illness is their life, not yours. Yeah, my my dad when he oh, was home, it is tough because uh you know, I when he got home and he was uh now appearing to be wheelchair bound and blah blah. And he kept saying to me when I would come over, which was almost daily because there was so much that had to get done. And he would say, "Is this going to be the rest of my life?" And I would say, "You know, I don't know, dad. That is your choice. You you are at a crucial moment in your life." to make a choice. Are you going to live or are you going to die? That's the choice point. 
right, right. now. And, right. and he would think about it and sleep on it. And, and he chose to get better. Right. So, you know, but he was, you know, I, which I think it's, I, I, I've been a type one diabetic for 30 years. I'm always at that choice point. Right. Do I choose to live or do I choose to die? It's, right. and I think that's true for every human being. It's mm-hmm. just, are we consciously aware of the yeah. gift of life or are we taking it for granted as we just go about our functions, our day or whatever? So thank you for answering that for me, David. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate it. You know, one thing that Brew used to say, I would talk about, I was having these horrible panic attacks and, you know, like the world was coming apart and I was going to go through and die. And he said, well, are you alive? And I was like, and he said, well, it's not time to die yet. If it was your time to die, you'd already be dead. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, wake up. Right, right. But the other thing, yeah. just to go back to your dad in the wheelchair. So I have now gotten a great deal of balance difficulty from some spinal problems and peripheral neuropathy. And so I'm now on forearm crutches, you know, not the crutches under here, forearm crutches. And there's a good chance I will be for the rest of my life. Um, Big time hiker, backpacker, Uh big change in my life. During the time that this was coming on, And also a central tremor that has gotten much worse during this time. So there's a sense for a long time or for many months of just continual diminishment. And I know these are both progressive conditions. And so I'm just like, it looks like downhill, you know, just. And then at some point I thought, okay, you now have a different body. You enjoyed for this part of your life this kind of body and you did these things and it was wonderful and you love that and you love that body but you have a different body now it's not diminishment it's a different body so how do you live with this body what can you do what can you not do how do you need to rearrange the kitchen because your hands are shaking all the time and you don't want to drop stuff on the floor and spill things and so it became a <clears throat> pragmatic problem of here's a new world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was a huge turning point simply for daily function, but also talk about learning and talking about pulling off another layer of ego with just like, I mean, <clears throat> I'm looking at them right now. My crutches are by the front door. They sat there for, I bought them. They sat there for six weeks. I would not go out of the house with them. And I'm finally, I called one of my friends and I said, look, and I need you to tell me that you're going to come over here at 10 o'clock in the morning and that we're going to go for a walk at David Caldwell Park and I'm going to use my crutches. <clears throat> and if I promise you that I will be out there at 10 o'clock, I will be out there with the crutches. I can't do this by myself. But if we are in conversation together, I can do it. So the change, that turn for me was an enormous, I just learned so much from it. And I had Mm -hmm. great, you know, I had somebody who came in and built shelves and moved the microwave and stuff in my kitchen. And, you know, having friends is a good thing. 
Well, and also what you're describing to me, David, and then we're going to have to wrap up is going back into um, the, into the field of suffering is that vulnerability is part of suffering and suffering is is how we suffer is when we resist being vulnerable when we say i i can't be that open i can't you know i can't let people squish me like a bug but the vulnerability i've learned and i've witnessed is actually a a deeper connection to source because mm-hmm. in that vulnerability you, you you've got to surrender your humanness to a degree so source can inform you from the inside out this is what we're going to do like you said with your friend but source is also there the divine oh, yeah. is also there saying we're doing this together but the human has to become vulnerable to say okay god i i got nothing what are you going to help me with kind of thing well and i think <clears throat> The human vocation is this movement back and forth between healing and illness, balance and imbalance. Mm -hmm. And so if we fight vulnerability, if we fight illness, we're basically lopping off half of the human vocation. The vocation is balancing and movement back and forth and recognizing that and being willing to embrace it, I think, is is the central thing in caregiving and in every in everything in everything yeah david thanks so much for joining me today it's been such a pleasure you're you're just a you're just a divine gift really 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 with the just and i don't even know your whole story but what you've shared today you know i have a sense and a feel that you've just been a caregiver for so many in terms of uh, teaching ethics and and how to uh, take care of oneself. So uh, the book is called Into the Field of Suffering, Finding the Other Side of Burnout. David, thank you so much for joining me. And I'm just going to end with, and so it is, namaste. Well, that wraps up our empowering chat today. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, go to susanburrell.com. You can... See all of the information about my new book, Live an Empowered Life, A 30-Day Journey. You can also access guided meditations that I have on Insight Timer through the website and just see what else is out there on my site that you might find empowering and exciting to experience. You can also contact me through the website at susan at susanmorell.com. That's it for today. See you next time.